Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. All right, before we get to our podcast today, a word from our sponsor, and this is a great one. You know, hurricane season is again upon us, and thousands of Floridians have not received fair compensation for their Hurricane Irma claims. If your claim was denied, underpaid, or assessed below your deductible, you need a free consultation with an experienced insurance attorney at the law office of Lloyd J. Heilbrun. Call 561-727-3636 or contact through heilbrunlaw.com. That's H E. I-L-B-R-U-N-N-L-A-W.com or 561-727-3636. The Law Office of Lloyd J. Halbrun handles insurance, personal attorney, and wrongful death cases on a no-fee, no-cost, unless there is a recovery basis. Welcome into episode 49 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as usual with Chris Whittingham. You can find us on iTunes if you have Apple. We're also on Google Play if you have Android. Also, the Podbean app is a great place to find us because all of the other podcasts in our network are grouped with us. We're on CastBox and several other platforms. Be sure to follow us at Five Reasons Sports. That's the number five. We're running daily chats there with the various characters in our networking. Get your questions answered. Also, we're having contests, and a lot of the questions will appear on the podcast. So definitely a lot of what we do from the Twitter feed, Five Reasons Sports, flows into the podcast on our network. And Chris, what we wanted to do today to engage our Miami audience a little bit too is answer this question. Is this the best LeBron James that we've ever seen? He's in his 15th season. He's 33 years old. He's now advanced to the conference finals again. He's there every year. And I put this out on Twitter here, Chris. It is remarkable. If you look at how he has massacred the Eastern Conference over the course of his career. Uh, the first part I want to look at is, is this the best LeBron ever, is the playoffs. And so to look at some of these numbers so far, and it, again, this is ridiculous. When you line up his playoff numbers over the course of his career and the consistency of them, and look, one is going to jump out to everybody, okay? 2010-2011 yep. is going to jump out as the outlier here. And at, most of this was colored by the finals because what people don't really remember is how well he played against Boston and Chicago in particular, and, and even in that first round series against Philadelphia. But if you look at his points per game in 2010-2011, it was 23.7, by far the lowest of his career. And that is largely, again, because of the finals. I think he went into the finals averaging 28 a game, but then Dwayne outplayed him by a wide margin in the finals. But if you look at what he's done this year, 11 games, he's averaging 41.4 minutes per game. I know it seems like a ton. It seems like he never comes out anymore. And I know he talked about not coming out in that Indiana game seven. It's actually the same as, as last season. He was at 41.3 last season. He actually played more minutes per game in his first season back in Cleveland, 42.2, largely in that playoff run because Kyrie got hurt or was playing hurt throughout the playoffs and then was out after the first game. And he didn't have love after the first round series. After so Kelly, After Kelly Olenek broke him. 
Correct. So he played 42.4. When you go back to some of his early Cleveland days, his first playoff series with Cleveland, he played 13 games, 46.5 minutes per game. <laughs> okay. Was that was that Paul Silas or was that Mike Brown? I think that was Mike Brown because I, okay. I don't he didn't go to the playoffs with Silas, did he? I, I don't believe so. I'll have to check on that. But but 46.5 his first year and then 44.6 his second year. It is kind of crazy just like from a broader historical point of view, like just how much more now we know about science and health and that, oh yeah, we kind of need to get our guys a break every once in a while. Like the idea that in, in the space of a decade, that philosophy has shifted from you play every minute to like now there's real angst about him playing this much, whereas it just wasn't a conversation, it was just a thing you did in the playoffs. Yeah, I think if we looked at Steph Curry's minutes, they'd look a lot different, right? I mean, uh, yep. because Kerr doesn't play his guys that much. So he's at 41.4 minutes, and right now he's averaging 34.3 points. That would be his second-best postseason from a points-per-game perspective. Uh, he averaged 35.3 in the 2008-2009 series, and that's the uh, 2009 playoffs, and that's the year that he had what I remember having a conversation with him. He felt that was his best series he's ever had the series against Orlando mm-hmm. um, that they lost and, and they that, you know, that the was the first time he hit like a big game winner right he hit, he hit like a top yes. of the key three he did and he just his numbers in that series were just insane and and it was funny because I joked with him once about it because he said yeah and they were calling Michael Petrus the LeBron stopper and I <laughs> and, I, and I, I was putting up 35 12 and 12 and that's pretty much what he did and they lost that series and of course that's the series that deprived us of the puppet finals remember the puppet that's commercials right, that's right with, with Kobe, uh, Kobe with, and LeBron with, and one of LeBron's regrets uh, is that he never faced talked to him about this too he never faced Kobe in a finals and, and always wanted to do that he was always insanely competitive about Kobe I remember in 2015 having a conversation with him in the locker room where he had actually saved a photo on his phone that he wanted to show me and so he kept telling me he wanted to show me a photo and I thought it was a picture of like his daughter because his daughter had been born around the same time that my daughter was born at summer of 2014 and he, he called me over and I, I looked at his phone and he, I said what is this he says it was like a meme and it was on one side of the meme was how much ticket prices go up when Kobe visits a city and the other side was how much ticket prices go up when LeBron visits a city and it was like much larger with LeBron <laughs> and so it, it was an That's interesting the kind one. of stuff he was so, competitive about yeah. I mean, what, look, when you're at that level, right? I mean, that's the type of thing you're competing for, right? Because sure. it's all about and that's why this it's always been ridiculous to me when, you know, he's kind of pushed away the Jordan narrative a lot. And we're going to get into this more. He's pushed away the Jordan narrative, but then seems to always come back to it. You know, I remember the uh, the All-Star game in, in Houston where he was getting asked. It was Jordan's 50th birthday, I think. And so uh, he was getting asked all these Jordan questions the whole week, and he was totally sick of them. And Mike Wallace and I were trying to ask him about other questions. So since he knew both of us, he was sort of looking at us to ask him the questions because it was just Jordan, 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 Jordan. And he just resisted it the whole weekend. And then I've seen recently he's had, you know, quotes about chasing Jordan's ghost and all that. So he does, look, when you're at his level, again, you're not even competing with James Harden, right, who's going to be the MVP this year. You're competing with those ghosts, right? You're competing with with Kobe. You're competing with Jordan. You're competing with Magic. I mean, that's the level of stratosphere you're in. So anyway, getting back to this particular postseason, if you look at the rest of his numbers, 9.4 rebounds, that would be the third, be- fourth best in his playoff career. Nine assists, that would be the best, by the way. Really? Um, so his his assists, we can talk about him not involving his teammates, 
His assists are the highest that they've ever been in a postseason. So, and again, the other thing which we're going to touch on is he's had the game winners in this postseason. For you so far, through two rounds, is, is this as well as he's played in the playoffs? Yeah, it's, I've been trying to sort of figure out where I'm going to stand on these things because to me, the fact that they struggle with Indiana in round one is a real blemish. And I do think that, yes, obviously from a statistical point of view, these are incredible numbers. And yes, he does not have a superstar teammate for the first time since 2000 and uh, since 2015 in, in, the, in, in those playoffs because Kyrie, well, Kyrie was there for most of it. So I guess that's probably not fair on him. But since those finals, the, the, the 2015 finals after Kyrie got hurt, it's probably the first time he's been forced to play like this since back in, you know, the last decade. So I think from an individual point of view, those numbers are always going to be crazy high. His minutes load was going to be crazy high. But I do think that there is a certain amount of blemish to going along with the Pacers to having to do this, frankly, because I do think he's kind of been a corrosive force for himself in some respects. I do think that if LeBron had handled the relationship with Kyrie differently, then Kyrie would still be in Cleveland. I think part of the reason why people get on uh, Kevin Love so much is that from the onset, he was never really totally embracing of Kevin Love. So I do think that there are mitigating factors to why he has to do this. But if we remove those mitigating factors, he's been incredible. And night in and night out, when his team has been up against it, we talked about it in a different context, but we were saying that the Pacers outscored the Cavs by like 40-some points in that first-round series, and yet every time it came down to it, LeBron was there to deliver. And whether it was delivering passes to Kyle Korver to make threes or whether it was in the last round against Toronto to single-handedly end them game after game, what he's been asked to do, the low that he's been asked to carry, he's done it with aplomb. And he's just so incredible, night after night, the consistency of delivering these numbers that now it's kind of like what happened with Anthony Davis after Boogie Cousins got hurt, where it's like, meh, show me when he's at 40, 15 with six blocks. Like, mm-hmm. like the, the numbers that he puts up now, the fact that what you're talking about are his averages. They're his. This is what an average performance looks like for LeBron. You almost get used to it. Yeah, you do. I, and, you know, we're, we're going to get into more on the clutch thing because uh, I, I think that's where so many people judge him. But when you look at that first round series against Indiana, we can say that and I, I've made the case here on the pod. I mean, if you just look at the players individually on that Indiana team, even with Oladipo's emergence, I mean, look, it's a, it's a patched together team. I, I think he's faced better teams in the first round. I mean, he's he's certainly faced teams with more star quality players in the first round. He's faced a lot of flawed teams because typically he's been a one or two seed. So he's gotten a lot of seven or eight seeds. But that Indiana team played better team basketball than a lot of the teams he's faced in the first round. I mean, we talked about that Knicks team, right, that he faced when he was with the Heat. I mean, that team was kind of a mess at that stage, right? I mean, they were still relying on Baron Davis to give them minutes at the point. Then he his knee exploded. Then Shepard's knee exploded in the same series. I mean, he's had some fortunate things happen in the first round. But I think that Indiana team was more again, together than a lot of those other teams. And the Toronto thing, look, we can't, you know, we can't say after the fact, well, Toronto is not very good or whatever. They're not a real number one seed or they're a fraudulent number one seed. When they ran through the Eastern Conference the way that they did this year, because that was not a flukish number one seed for the Raptors. Like, they dominated teams. If, yeah. you, if you look, if you if you look at their net rating this year, you know, people say, okay, I, I saw a lot of this. Is Toronto the worst number one seed ever? Toronto was a number one seed this year was much better than Boston as a number one seed last year. Much better. Uh, Look look at the rosters, right? I mean, 
uh, we, we talk about Boston being decimated this year with no Hayward and no Kyrie. But again, look at what that team was starting. I mean, Isaiah Thomas, who to a certain degree has been exposed, was your best player, um, you know, along with Horford. And, you know, Jake Crowder, who, uh, you know, also exposed a bit this year, at least during his time in Cleveland, was a starting player. Toronto's team is more talented than that Boston team that had the number one seed last year. I think a lot of that Boston you team made was a convincing just coaching. Argument. You could have made a convincing argument they were the third best team in the league this year. And that's and it's not it's not because the league is bad. It's because Toronto was really good this season. They had a really good bench unit and their underlying numbers are fantastic. They did not fluke their way to being the one seed. They're legit. And it's just because of the prior history of them against Cleveland that nobody respects them. If they didn't have to play this LeBron team, like if Indiana had beaten Cleveland, Toronto for me is going to the NBA finals. And so oh, agreed. and agreed. so I, I, I don't think that this is a fraudulent team. No, I don't. And now the Eastern Conference Finals, this may be one of the easier Eastern Conference Finals opponents that he's had. Because I, I be you careful, know, get, man. We've been we've been underestimating Boston. I, I know, I, and I love I love I, I love Tatum and I love Brown, but I, I just I mean I don't know that they're ready to seriously compete with him. You know, you look at again. Let, let's look at the teams that he faced the four years while he was with the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. A really good Chicago team. The Indiana team that he faced in the Eastern Conference Finals was flawed in some ways, but pretty well balanced and I mean, had an emerging they, player. They were, in there, there were times where they were in Miami's head. I mean, particularly yes. particularly Roy Hibbert. I mean, yeah. Roy Hibbert, who was very quickly out of the league because, you know, the league kind of moved quickly enough that he became useless. But in 2013, 2012, like, he was in LeBron James's head because of the verticality yeah. stuff. And wasn't LeBron, like, practicing post moves or something like that? Like, <laughs> there was a time where those were not easy games. Those were difficult games. And yeah, and it was it was a solid team, and the Boston team, obviously, that he had to get past. I mean, that was I mean, look, Pierce and Garnett were towards the end, but Rondo was still in his prime. I you mean, they were down three two to them in in that in that Eastern semis or that Eastern yes. finals, and they'd won a championship before. So those teams were better than this Boston team that he's going to see in the Eastern Conference Finals. So um, again, people are going to knock him on that, but I think when you get to this point, the eleven games that he's played so far, I think he's been about as good. As I've seen, I don't I don't know that I would necessarily put it over a couple of his playoff runs. Again, that 2013 run from start to finish was pretty incredible. I mentioned the 2008 2009 uh, run that he had, even though it didn't end up in the finals. He was tremendous during that. And he was pretty tremendous uh, for Cleveland the first year back, uh, losing love when they did. And then you, you said Kyrie was was there, but Kyrie was not right. So I think this one ranks pretty closely. Continue on the LeBron conversation, but first a word from our sponsor, Analytic. Are you a business owner? Need expert help with bookkeeping, payroll, virtual CFO, or analytic services so you can focus on growing that business? You need to hire Analytic. They'll take care of your day-to-day concerns while giving you insights about your company for better long-term decisions. You can find them at analytic.io. That's A-N-A-L-Y-T-I-Q dot I-O. Analytic. Dot io email info at analytic.io as well and follow them on twitter at the analytic say five reasons sent you and if you sign up or refer someone who does you'll receive a 200 amazon gift card that's analytic and now back to the podcast let's get to number two here let's look at the player in totality and where he is right now i think there are some things that he's doing better than he ever did before. He sees the floor. I mean, he always saw the floor better than everybody else, right? Better than anybody since Magic. But the way that he sees it now, I mean, there 
there's one clip that's going around Twitter of him with that behind the back bounce pass mm-hmm. where he's just setting up a possession. And it's like he's just at the point now where things have slowed down to him to such a degree. He's just seeing three, four, five steps ahead. It's ridiculous, okay, the way that he sees the floor. And I did a piece with him, a one-on-one with him for his 30th birthday. And I asked him what was the thing that frustrated him the most. And he said it was that people always judged him based on his athleticism and not on his basketball IQ. And what we've seen here in recent years is that we always talk about athletes and we say, well, by the time they figure it out, their body's broken down, right? Like this is the the pattern with athletes, like even with Dwayne to a certain extent, right? Like Dwayne sees the game totally differently. His body just doesn't do some of the things that it used to be able to do, but he's adjusted in some ways. But LeBron still athletically to be at that level and the way that he's seeing the game that part of it, I think he's ahead of where he's ever been. It's mastery. He has a total mastery of the game. And even like, so we're talking about his minutes load, right? But part of the reason why he can play that amount of minutes is that on top of knowing what to do with the ball in his hands, on top of knowing where to be defensively, although at times it's not great from a defensive point of view, I think he knows when to kind of take time off while he's in the game. So I'm in the game. All right, I'm going to go, you know, be the guy that's kind of hidden on somebody defensively so I can kind of stand here for 15 seconds and, you know, take a little bit of a breather while the game goes on around me. Like, knows how to conserve energy mid-game. Has just this ridiculous level of stretching and and working out, and I mean, he chronicles it all on Instagram, so you can, you can see it for yourself. But I think knows how to manage his body. Like, all these different things that... NBA players, like you say, learn over the course of 10 years in the league, all these different things. Like, didn't Derrick Rose, after he had all these major injuries, like, oh, I finally learned how to stretch. Like, all these all these different things, the eating, the travel, all these different things that go into being an NBA player, it takes a long time to really figure out what's the most effective way, and then when your body starts to feel it a little bit, you have to take care of it a lot more, and LeBron has reached a stage where he is doing all these things and also is in peak physical form, and it's because he's a freak. He, he's, he's a once-in-a-generation freak, and while I understand he wants to be talked about for all the other things, it is still a marvel that he's doing this, age 33, after playing, I, I just did the math, 53,000 career minutes. Mm-hmm. 53,000 career minutes. And so it's just absolutely crazy that he's done all this work, he's played all this much, and is still at the top of his game. And and it's a mastery of everything. It's not just the basketball, it's everything else. Yeah, I don't think that certain people around him get enough credit, to be honest. Uh, and some of it is because they don't want the credit. Like, we talk a lot about what Maverick Carter has done uh, from, from a marketing standpoint for him. What Mike Mancius has done for him as his trainer is mm-hmm. just remarkable. And I'm a little bit biased here because Mike's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. But and Mike was you know, Mike was hired on staff here in Miami and then went back with him up to Cleveland. But they have that thing down to a freaking science. They do. It's just I mean, w- what they've done with him over the years. And you mentioned the stretching. Mike's with him everywhere, knows him inside and out, sort of what works for him, what doesn't work for him. During that interview I had with LeBron when he was 30, I said, you know, how long do you want to play? And he said, uh, you know, I think I can go till 40. And, you know, you look at it right now, he's 33. I mean, 
nobody is going to say right now that he can't go till 40. And I don't even know that he's going to have to do what, say, Magic Johnson did. Like, we always talked about, you know, later in his career, maybe LeBron becomes more of a standard power forward, right? Well, that standard power forward doesn't exist anymore. You know, Magic Johnson, in his when he came back, and obviously there was HIV diagnosis, and then he came back. Magic Johnson came back as a power forward. He didn't come back as a point guard. And I think there was some feeling, and I know this came up when he was playing with the Heat, because one of the things that the Heat staff was trying to do with him was get him in the post more, right? And a lot of the Heat's most electric lineups were with LeBron at the four. And if you were to point to one issue that kept coming up between Spolstra and LeBron during LeBron's four years in Miami, it was that. It was playing the four. Like, LeBron did not want to play the four. And and I thought that's where his career was ultimately going to have to go. I don't know that it does now. Like, I think he can play on the perimeter for as long as he wants, so he loses half a step. So what? Right? It doesn't, he's still he's still stronger than everybody else. He still sees the floor better than anyone else. He's improved uh, his perimeter game to a certain degree. This is clearly okay. The best player he's ever been in Cleveland. Can we agree on that? Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, I'd say that. Okay, I I, I think. You go back to his, uh, you know, his first, whatever, seven years in Cleveland. You look at the numbers now. I think this is the best LeBron in Cleveland. Also, by the way, played 82 games for the first time ever this season and led the league in minutes played and had his highest and led the league in, in value over replacement player too, highest he's ever done in Cleveland. To me, the only season that compares to this one would be that 12-13 season, his third season in Miami. Yeah. Fourth season in Miami got a little bit sideways because Dwayne was never playing and that was a source of irritation even as close as they are where LeBron wouldn't know if Dwayne was playing that night and whether he was going to be playing with Tony Douglas okay because because that was <laughs> happening a lot okay I mean I look again look at that fourth year roster with the heat Mike Miller was gone Tony Douglas Michael Beasley and Greg Oden were in okay it was it was a different team than he had the previous year but I think it's 2012-13 or it's this year. These are the two best versions of LeBron. 2012-13 was incredible, man. Because like you said, there was that stage where he had kind of, he had won the championship and now it was time to really evolve. And now it was just time to dial it up to another level. And I think it's really the first season that I can think of where he got to play with a sense of comfort and, you know, with this team that was perfectly tailored to him and he was playing small ball and it was just all, all the things came into play. And I really think that getting everyone off his back by winning the championship, that had it had reached that point. I don't remember there being that much drama that, that, that season either. It was just about the basketball and it was just about him playing at his absolute very peak. So I think for me, just uh, you're always going to lean towards when he's a bit younger and doing all these things because maybe if it's 5%, he's 5% more athletic. But yeah, I, I would say this season and then that season in 2012-13 are about as good as we've seen from him. You look at the 27-game winning streak, and Dwayne was great during that winning streak. But the only controversy during the 27-game winning streak was Danny Ainge piping in about LeBron complaining <laughs> about getting hard fouls by by Heinrich when the winning streak ended in Chicago. And the, and, old, uh, and the all-time press release. And Riley, yeah, Riley basically putting it out there that Ainge should shut up and shut the bleep up and manage his own team, which unfortunately Danny Ainge has done, uh, which it was not good for the Heat going forward because Danny <laughs> Ainge has done a pretty good job since 2013 putting that thing together. But yeah, there was no drama that season. Like He was at peace. Um, the, the previous year, he was not. 
Obviously, that first year he was not. He was trying to be the villain. He was never comfortable with it. He was getting booed in places like Portland and Memphis, places that never had a chance to get him in 2010. And for some reason, they all went ballistic about him. I mean, we talked with Ronnie Rothstein about what that scene was like in Cleveland where Ronnie was scared for his life. LeBron didn't have any of that stuff by the third season. They, he was just playing at a peak peak level. And, uh, and, and during that win streak, by the way, I just did the numbers here in basketball reference, mm-hmm. 27, eight and eight on 57 and a half percent shooting. Oh, he was incredibly efficient. Incredible. And during that season, he had gotten to the point and this carried over a little bit to his fourth season in Miami where he would not take a bad shot. You remember like, yeah, he would have a pretty good shot and he would not take it because he was preserving his field goal percentage. And he and Dwayne actually had a contest on shooting 50% in the game. And, you know, we always joke about waiting until the buzzer expires, right, before launching, mm-hmm. you know, that long three. Like, they were open about it. Like, I, I wrote a story about this with the two of them. Like, they were open about the fact they would not take that shot because they were having this this 50 His only competition that year, honestly, was Dwayne. Like, <laughs> they were competing with each other. They weren't even competing with the league anymore. Like, they had gotten that thing down to such a science. Even if Dwayne wasn't peak Dwayne, he was still good enough at that stage when he was playing. Whereas this season, he hasn't had any of that, right? Like, if you're to make a case for this being a better season than 2012-13, it would probably be that he's managed to do this while still having all that bleep going on in Cleveland. I mean, they traded half the roster, right? And he has not had his, you know, uh, a second-best player with him the whole year. If you're to make a case for this year, that might be the case you make. But the one thing, Ethan, though, is is when you look from a defensive point of view, I, I do think that he does deserve some black marks for, for what's happened this season. For playing on a team that is the third worst defense in the league, I, although the numbers have gotten better in the playoffs, particularly during this Toronto series, but it is still to a degree where defensively I think he is at least is, is someone couple And this is – I talked about kind of the slight drop-off in athleticism. By the way, in the playoffs, have been the 10th best defensive team. When you compare it to that 2012-13 season, the Heat were the fourth best defensive team in the playoffs that year. And then during the regular season, they were seventh. So it was in the context of playing great defense as well, and he was a major reason why. And part of the ways that energy gets conserved is on the defensive end. And so he isn't at full tilt all the time. And I think there's also kind of an understanding that every game is not important, that there are games that are just not important, and I'm not going to try hard in all those games. And as much as it is a real thing in getting through an NBA season and being able to survive it, I just also think that when you take nights off, when it's not necessarily a full effort every single night, it is a consideration when you're comparing across eras. You have to be able to watch the games and discern, oh, hang on a minute, LeBron's not trying on every possession of every game when you wouldn't have said that a few years ago. Hello, this is Chris Joseph, co-host of The Bulls Cast. Some of you might have heard our earlier promos on this podcast and wondered, what in the holy shit is Balls Cast thing all about? Well, Balls Cast is a comedy podcast about Miami sports, culture, and politics, and sex, and food. You know, all the shit that matters to those of us who call the 305 home. We also throw in parody songs and comedy sketches and invite the occasional cool ass guests and my co host Slim and I. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place 
to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Do all of this while completely baked out of our gourds. So if you love Miami sports, but you're also into laughing and living your fullest life in this beautiful city we call our home, then please download Ballscast wherever you consume your podcasts. Then sit back, relax, and enjoy the crazy. Now listen to some fart noises. All right, let's move on here to part three. And this is the argument that gets brought up all the time. I'm not going to acknowledge you know, a certain person who's gotten famous by bashing LeBron relentlessly on this uh, when it ceased to make sense like 10 years ago. So we won't get into that name, Skip Bayless. But but the the clutch thing here, Mm -hmm. because I think it's interesting. We could talk about all these other numbers, right? But the average NBA fan is not going to the pro basketball reference page. And they're probably not going to the advanced section of the pro basketball reference page. They're just watching the games, right? Like the, the average basketball fan is just watching the games. And so your casual fan who maybe just sees highlights on CNN, like they don't, they're not even watching on – they get the Bleacher Report thing like at the bottom of every hour for two minutes, right? They're not even watching ES, – you know, they're not downloading the ESPN app. They're not – nothing, okay? They're just catching that. What they're seeing in this postseason is, is LeBron making crazy last-second shots, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's the Those frame. Those are the images. Record. And so I think that's where this transition has happened, where more people are saying this is the best he's played because it doesn't even matter about the other numbers. It's about what he's doing at the end. And putting aside the false narrative, which was that LeBron wasn't clutch because that was a ridiculous narrative to begin with, because there were tons of clutch shots that he made. Okay, there. I remember the layup against the Pacers at the end of the game. I remember plenty of regular season games. There was what was it, the twenty-five point quarter I mentioned earlier against Detroit in the playoffs. I mean, there were there are plenty of examples of LeBron being clutch. But all anybody would remember during the Big Three era was like a game in Utah during the regular season where this was a big narrative that year. And you remember LeBron passing to Haslam at the end of that mm-hmm. game yeah. and UD missing, I think it was a straightaway jumper when UD really wasn't in rhythm. And we asked LeBron about it in the locker room afterwards and he brushed it off and said, I'll make the right play. I'll make the right play every time. And then before he got to the bus, he tweeted, I won't do that again. Okay. Or something <laughs> to that effect. So, so all of that crap was in his head. And he, I think it was even that all-star game where like, Kobe was daring him to shoot at the end like this was a narrative that LeBron tough Kobe who by the way misses like 80% of the shots in that situation okay if you look at the numbers right but that Kobe always takes a shot Dwayne always takes the shot right that kind of player always takes that shot uh but LeBron won't take that shot to me was always if you just look at the actual numbers was a crazy narrative but now to have two moments like that in a series and to do this in the postseason, I feel like casual basketball fan is now like, Oh, maybe LeBron's clutch. And I feel like that's changing the narrative here. Yeah. I, and I do think in some respect, it has nothing to do with his, like you said, his, that his basketball reference numbers, those numbers aren't that important. Although actually LeBron's better in those areas than he has been in recent years, even by percentage. 
So you go the last the last three years was at thirty one percent in two thousand four in in the two thousand fifteen playoffs was at thirty three percent in the two thousand sixteen playoffs and he was at twenty six percent last year in the clutch situation as defined by the NBA this year eleven for twenty two no player in the NBA has made more shots in those situations than LeBron James shooting it at fifty percent so he is actually statistically better, albeit in small samples, than he's been in recent years. But here's the major difference, and this is where you reach Kobe territory, is that it's not even necessarily about whether or not he is actually effective in those situations. It is about, do you feel like he is going to be effective in those situations? Do you feel like if you're up one and he has the ball with less than 20 seconds to play, that you're going to be ended? And I would say, for the first time in 15 years, the answer to that question is yes. And as much as in recent years he has done it occasionally, now you feel like he is going to do it. He had never felt like, well, if you just give him an opportunity, he's going to end you. I didn't feel like as a Heat fan. I remember in those 2010-2011 season when it was kind of a major talking point. Who would have the ball at the end of the game? When LeBron had the ball, I hoped that he was going to make it. I was really hoping because I wanted all the national media members to shut up. But deep down, you knew... Yeah, he might not make it. Whereas now, I feel like, even after all the things that he's done in his career, you feel like now as he's at the stage where he actually does have that killer mentality, that killer instinct, to where if you're an opposing fan, you don't just think, oh, he's the greatest player of all time. I might, We might have a chance to lose here. You think, oh, crap. We're done. And but like before the play is even over, you think to yourself, LeBron's actually going to come through. And every single time in this postseason, he's come through. The Cavs are 6-1 and one in games that are, have been decided in clutch situations, and he's shooting at a really high percentage. So greater than anything else is the feeling of when he has the ball at the end of the game that's different than previous years. Yeah, and if you're Canadian, you certainly feel that because he's basically <laughs> he's basically annexing your country essentially. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to all end up with uh, with free healthcare because of LeBron. Yeah, look, I do think there's something to that. And we can talk about all the numbers, but you're right. There is there is a feeling here, and I can speak to this a little bit because before I moved down here for good, um, when I was uh, in college and I grew up in New York, I grew up a Knicks fan and, you know, and and was really into those Knicks teams that Riley coached, you know, before Van Gundy took over and you just knew against Jordan like whatever the lead was it did not matter like it made absolutely no difference like Michael was going to go on one of those ridiculous runs at the end of the game and was going to take over and you might even look up and Michael might be 9 of 31 but you remembered all of those nine shots because they seemed to be the shots that sunk you and I do feel like that's starting to happen here a little bit with LeBron and I think part of it is that LeBron was caught in between here a little bit because when he came into the league he was being compared to Jordan as far as being a generational player but his game was more like magic to a certain degree. And so I think he's always been caught in between because it was never really an issue when magic didn't take the last shot. And so, you know, we never think of that with magic. And also with Michael, we never think of, okay, he set up Paxson for a shot. He set up Kerr for a shot. He set up Luke Longley with a pass at the end of the game. Could you imagine if LeBron passed to, I'm not even going to mention Ilgowska, so that might be the closest comp to Longley, but if he set up Joel Anthony at the end of a game, I mean, let's, you know, let's go there. Um, he set up Joel Anthony <laughs> with a pass at the end of the game, and the ball bounced off jo- the Warden's hands and out of bounds. Of course, I mean, it did. Right. <laughs> I love the Warden, but there's a possibility that would have happened. Could you have imagined the uproar about that? that yeah. LeBron didn't want to take the shot; he wanted to pass. But Michael passed to Luke Longley at the end of a game. I mean, what did Luke average for his career? Maybe I'm gonna look it up. Maybe eight points a game. So again, narratives have changed. I think LeBron got caught in between a little bit there. 
but I think, yeah, he has – this is the last narrative that I think he really wanted to change because this was a big issue for him even when he was playing at a really high level for the Heat was that, oh, he won't take that last shot. He's afraid to take that last shot. Why does he always make the right play? And I just – I defended him relentlessly about this because some of it, again, was just so stupid, um, You know, particularly the Baylesses of the world uh, that kept harping on this. And even the other day – I mean I don't want to dwell on this too much, Chris, but I mean he hits this ridiculous shot. Like I mean this ridiculous shot at the end of the game, right? And it wasn't an irresponsible shot because they were tied. So it's not like they were behind by a point okay so they were tied worst case scenario that game's going overtime he hits the shot and Bayless comes out and tweets you know it would have been really cool if he if he called bank okay or something I mean, no, like, it, was, it was if he meant it, it it's a great it, shot it, if he meant it which was genius it. by the way because there has to be a lab somewhere in in southern california now where skip bayless resides where he's gotta be okay what can i say now I've got to figure out a way to say something. And for him to constantly have this machine of takes to where no matter what, he's got the comment. It's he, it's a wrestling heel, man. He's a wrestling heel. It's funny. He's, but he's trying to be Cosell to Ali here. And, and that's just, I mean, he's not. It's, he's it, not I he's mean, not it's, not, it's not convincing. To me, it's hilarious. So anyway, I think the clutch thing has changed the dynamic. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Heat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Giancarlo Navas. And this week, we had Evan Cohen of ESPN West Palm and Sirius XM Mad Dog Radio. We talked trades, off-season scenario, how better is justice, and Evan also eviscerated LeBron. Well, he brought Miami championships, please. Miami taught him how to win, brought him two championships. I remember 06. Where's his before coming to Miami? Give me a freaking break. Okay, I mean, that was ridiculous. I was on the air that night. They won a championship. I was I was doing weekends and nights and random fill-in stuff on QAM. They win a championship, and I'm on the air all night. I don't remember talking about LeBron that night, so I don't want to hear that. Find that and more on the latest Miami Heat Beat podcast. You can find us at MA Heat Beat on Twitter and expect a new episode every Monday until the end of the NBA playoffs now on the Five Reasons Podcast Network. All right, let's get to these other two quicker here because we've gone a little bit long. Uh, number four, leadership with him. I had a long conversation with him uh, about leadership when he was with the Heat. I think it was during the Tony Douglas year, actually. That's what we call it, 2014. The Tony uh, Douglas year. <laughs> because, because I talked to him a little about his leadership style, and he was reading all of these books about leadership at the time. And he actually had – people thought he wasn't reading at that time. Like This was a prop. Like he was citing passages to me from the back of the book. Okay, We had like a 20-minute conversation about about this stuff. And he was telling me, I, I said, well, give me an example. And he said, well, I basically told Tony Douglas, when you're on the floor, okay, I want you to believe you're the best player on the floor. I mean, that was his, that's what he was taking from this, uh, that, you know, he had to make guys, he said sort of the art of leadership in his view was to make players believe they were better than they really were and that he was going to try to empower them that way. Now, you can make an argument that he hasn't always done that. Right. Like I, I think some people listening to this would say, OK, well, why do players keep some players? OK, keep getting better when they leave him or they're worse when they come to him. And the best examples are this year. Right. Because they brought in Isaiah Thomas and he was a disaster. OK. And played better when he got to L.A. Possible that he just got healthier. 
but there's no question he played better once he got to the Lakers, and there was less pressure on him too. Jay Crowder, who I thought would be a nice piece with LeBron because he's kind of a complimentary piece, was pretty awful in Cleveland, has been a contributor in Utah. Even Dwayne played at a higher level with Miami than he was playing in Cleveland. And Derrick Rose, okay, who, again, a lot of this is health-related, and you know, Derrick did take a two-week sabbatical of his own this season from Cleveland, but he had some moments in Minnesota that he didn't really have in Cleveland. Whereas the four players that they brought in at the deadline, the only one of them that's really still contributing in any significant way is George Hill, right? Roddy Hood asked not to come in the game the other night and is going to be disciplined for that. Jordan Clarkson's been up and down and Larry Nance is basically out of the rotation or at least was in that past series. So I think what people would counter and say, okay, well, LeBron supposedly makes everybody better. And certainly shooters have thrived off of him over the course of his career. Just look at, you know, the way that Battier and Allen and others played with him in Miami. But he has had some situations later, where lately, where it has seemed like he's submarined his teammates to a certain extent. And again, the fit in, fit out stuff with love, the obviously the way that the Kyrie relationship ended. There's been a little bit of that lately. Yeah, and I think it, it starts with the narrative point of teammates failing LeBron, right? And I think that it really does get into the heads of these players because if you're one of his teammates and you're not delivering, then you're one of the guys that, you know, LeBron kind of huffs off to the side and the the national media kind of comes after you as, oh, you're failing LeBron. And I do think that it is a pressure cooker to go and play with him and a lot of guys just aren't up for it. And I think you saw, I think the reason why LeBron has gravitated towards older players, towards players that might even be past their prime, is that, he is gravitating towards guys that won't respond negatively to those bits of pressure. They've been in those situations before, which is why it was interesting to me that they basically got rid of the old players and brought in a bunch of players who had never been there before, who had never done it before. And that's why I think Nance and Clarkson were never going to be up for this, and Hood as well. It's because they've never been in a situation where they have to be LeBron's teammate. Because that's, that's what you get pegged as, right? You're LeBron's mm-hmm. teammate. And if you don't deliver, you're failing him. There's also a drama element that I think a lot of players just don't respond too well. They don't like uh, who who wants to work in a work environment that's constantly under duress, that's constantly being talked about, that constantly has all this negativity surrounding it. And this Cavs season, particularly the regular season, now I'm sure it's nice and fun. Although I mean, the Rodney Hood thing maybe indicates that it's not fun for everybody in, in Cleveland at the moment. But this season did not appear to be very much fun to be a part of in Cleveland, and I feel like that is way too often a talking point. We mentioned how in 2000. 12-13, the Heat kind of got to play without drama very much, and they just got to focus on the basketball, and that's why I think it was probably the most fun season of LeBron's career, but when you look at overall, the course of his career, the reason why it's hard to play with him is because there's constant drama, there's constant narrative storyline that reporters become hounds with and they want to figure out what the hell is going on so I can't imagine it's always fun to be LeBron's teammate as much as when it's going well and when he trusts you that it's got to be incredible and you see guys that you know shoot all-time career highs from three-point or shoot at a level that they don't reach at any point again in their career because he has this gravitational pull that opposing defenses are so concerned with him 
that you don't concern yourself with his teammates and that leaves opportunities for them. There are off-court things that I think make it hard for guys to survive that. Yeah, I think you need a certain personality. I mean, you look at Mario Chalmers in Miami, and Mario broke down in the 2014 finals, and and that was, my understanding, had more to do with some off-the-court stuff that he was dealing with at that time, and, and LeBron was trying to sort of snap him out of it, and it never really happened during that series. But Mario, through the course of his career— believed he was the best player on that team, okay? Like, yeah. honestly believed it's almost You team- basically need irrational confidence why they have J.R. Smith. Correct, right. Exactly. It's the same kind of guy uh, to a certain degree. I mean, Mario's less erratic than J.R., but but certainly. And, yeah, Mario believed that. He believed he was the best player on the floor. He believed when he was with Dwayne Wade he was the best player on the floor. And you needed to have that to be able to, to play off LeBron and thrive off LeBron. And as you've mentioned, some of these Cleveland guys, I just don't think – we're ready for it. Now, people will say, well, Isaiah Thomas clearly believed he was the best player on the floor, right? I mean, look at how many shots he took when he came back. But I think that was more a style of play issue. Mm-hmm. And also Isaiah not being right. I mean, I, the guy we saw this year is not the same player that we saw in Boston. He clearly came back too soon. I mean, that that just didn't work out for anybody. And I do think with some of the way his actions and some of the comments that he's made, he's taken that away from certain guys. And that's the power that he has. And I think with Kevin Love, again, it's been this push-pull with Kevin Love, where there are some times that LeBron seems to be putting his arms around Kevin Love, and there are other times that he's doing the fit-in, fit-out thing mm-hmm. I on think Twitter with you're, you're right. He does have this power, but to me, the, the kind of the one flaw in his career is that he doesn't always use the power for good. And look, man, it's really hard to be that famous, that good, know you're that famous and that good, and always feel altruistic about it. There are times where you kind of you, you just want to be a human, and being a human is getting frustrated that people around you aren't as good as you. But there are times where it's just it doesn't always seem like he wants to help everyone on his team. Like he wants to be the guy that's kind of putting an arm around someone's shoulder and helping them out. I think you saw particularly this season when he's frustrated with an overall situation, the individuals kind of become the casualties of it. And I think LeBron's been frustrated with management all year that they let Kyrie get away, that his team isn't at a point where he feels like they can compete with Golden State. And I think in that lashing out, it created a corrosive environment. And it's always with him, players, players first. LeBron puts players first, whether honestly they're on his team or not. Like he just, he has a very player centric mentality. Uh, it's a little bit anti-management. We've seen it. I think in the case of Gilbert, it's justified um, in terms of the way that Gilbert has run things and the way that Gilbert treated him on the way out the door. It cropped up a little bit in Miami. I think in those cases, it may have been less justified. But yeah, he, he certainly views things that way. But he does try. He has tried over the course of his life to prop up others around him. I mean, look at what he's done with his management team. These are all guys he grew up with for the most part. Rich Paul was not, but Rich Paul was a guy who was basically a super fan. He added him to his team and he empowered him. And even his his four teammates of the so-called uh, his Fab Five from high school, from St. Vincent, St. Mary's, he's still in touch with all those guys. I did a story about this a few years ago, and his whole thing was trying to get them to win a title. And I remember the very first conversation I had with him uh, for, for an interview in Miami, Chris, was about uh, this book that he wrote with Buzz Bichinger about that team, which he called his dream team. And I said, well, what do you want to do in Miami? He says, uh, what I care about is getting guys like Jawan Howard and, and Z, uh, is on the team, and Jamal McGlure. I want them to get a championship with me because they, they're not going to have another opportunity. These are guys at the end of their career. So he does think in those terms. I think he wants the best for his teammates. I think sometimes it doesn't always come out that way. All right, real quick here, the last part of this, which is we've touched on this some throughout the pod, so we don't have to belabor it, but the Jordan comparison here. 
and everybody's going to go to the finals number. Okay. Six and oh, three and five. And it's likely going to be three and six. Right. I mean, because you and I both agree the two best teams in the league are out west and they're going to be playing this Western Conference finals. And LeBron's going to get hammered on that comparison again. And LeBron is starting to break some of Jordan's records in the postseason. Now, you've mentioned that you think that he's gotten to that point now where at the end of the game, he is going to kill you like Jordan did. And that is not the perception of LeBron necessarily throughout the end of his career. How do we even make this comparison, Chris? I think, and I was on the radio with Omar Kelly on Monday, and I think he did. A, he had a decent idea, which was to try to establish parameters, right? Try to establish, all right, so if you're comparing all-time NBA players, how do you go about doing it? What are the ways in which you compare players? And so I, I think that you have to really start to look over career achievements. Obviously, the titles comes into play, but do you care that LeBron's been to more finals than Jordan ever did? Do you compare? Do you care that the competition in the Eastern Conference was different now than it was back then? But uh, do you care about longevity? Do you do you care about the fact that LeBron James is now entering year fifteen of his prime, and LeBron and Michael Jordan decided with two years of his prime to take years off? That he retired twice. Uh, for whatever reason, and that to me that doesn't get talked about enough as sort of a black mark against him. But there are there are many different ways that you can compare these two players. I guess the thing that ends up happening is that old school guys don't want to entertain it because they will forever think that as long as they live, there will never be a basketball player better than Michael Jordan. But and then there are young people like myself that. I never saw Michael Jordan in his prime. I was six years old during the 98 finals. I never saw Michael Jordan at the peak of his power. So it really is going to take someone who was alive for both, who is really interested in having the conversation to establish parameters and then go about doing it. But I really do think it just comes down to personal preference and in sort of what your, what your ultimate deciding factor is going to be. I don't feel like I have a real say in this argument because I I would have had to have been alive during the Jordan era. I just, my personal point of view is that it's not just about how many finals did you get to and how many did you win? That's not the ultimate measure of a player's career. There are other things and we can talk about what those things are, but I think there are other things that you have to, you have to entertain when having this conversation. Your conclusion can still be Jordan, but I, I want a better reason than he went to six finals and he won all of them. Yeah, I think you need a better reason than that. And, you know, I'm speaking of this as somebody who was a fan during the Jordan era and was, you know, courtside or somewhere in a press row for five seasons of LeBron's career in his prime. And so I'm trying to separate those two things because I viewed them much differently because I had a personal investment uh, with Jordan because, I, again, I was I was a Nick fan. And then I you know came down to Miami and, and transitioned to getting into media down here. And so I experienced the Jordan era very differently than LeBron era. I do think the numbers other than the finals are going to be kind to LeBron as time passes because the advanced numbers are kinder to LeBron than they are to Jordan. We just view the game differently now. Efficiency and Jordan was an extraordinarily efficient player for as much as he shot. But LeBron is taking that to a completely other level. And I do think also you mentioned that the years that Jordan took off and whatever the reason was, whether it was what they stated, that he wanted to play baseball, he needed time off, his father was murdered, or whether it was gambling, whatever it was, okay, that led to that period of time off. The reality is LeBron has not had that period of time off, as you say, and he's continued to put up 
these ridiculous numbers. And, you know, we'll probably do another pod. We did one already about where LeBron ends up. And that ultimately may sort of cement his legacy. If he's going to win a championship in a third city, <laughs> I mean, you're looking and, and do it maybe as the, as the best player on another team, then that's another conversation that people are going to have. So I just think, again, the numbers I think are going to be kinder to LeBron as time passes. And with Jordan, it's always going to be about these moments, right? It's the the sick game against Utah or the shot over Elo or the shot over Brian Russell where he pushed off, okay? Any any of those are going to come up, okay, in those situations. But LeBron is beginning to compile a lot of those moments. And they just happened, a lot of them becoming a little bit later in his career. And I think ultimately, when sort of the historians look at this in 20, 25 years, I, I think if LeBron continues doing something close to what he's doing for the next three or four years, I think people are going to put LeBron ahead of Jordan. I think it's going to be a lot of old heads who are going to say, you know, people like me who are going to saying, oh, I remember when when Jordan did this against this team or that team. But I think empirically, I think it's going to be more about LeBron. And again, when you look at those finals, the three and five is unfair. He was at fault for one of them. 2011 mm-hmm. okay and he is squarely at fault for that Agreed. right and, and and someday i would love to get him on a heat stories episode and explain exactly what happened there okay <laughs> okay that's my goal but he's clearly at fault for that but was not at fault for 2007 that team was awful against an experienced spurs team okay not at fault for that at all the other finals he lost with miami they had no chance against the way that spurs team was playing then and he was not the problem in that finals. It was everybody else. The first year with Cleveland, again, didn't have love, didn't have Kyrie, okay, against an all-time great Warriors team, and then another all-time great Warriors team two years later that had Kevin Durant, okay, it added to, to Steph Curry. So I, the, the whole three and five thing does not carry weight for me, and I think eventually over time it's going to be more about the championships he won and not the championships that he lost. And the quality of play, because, and, and that for me is the thing that's so weird is that we watch all these games. We spend so much time, you know, dis- dissecting and watching the NBA, and yet you're really just going to boil it down to six versus three? Like, that's just crazy to me. Like, why would you spend all this time watching the sport if at the end of all of it, all you're going to say is, ah, who won the championship? And the idea that that's not related to the team or that, you know, Jordan won all of these with playing with Scottie Pippen, who was an incredible basketball player in his own right. Like, that you're not going to talk about any of the context. You're not you're not going to talk about any of the play. You're just going to say, hey, I won six, the other guy won three. It, you know, it's not even a conversation. It's just, it's just to me so lazy and so strange. We don't do it in other sports. We do it to quarterbacks. To court to quarterbacks a little bit, and Marino gets dinged for it. Obviously, and Montana gets elevated ahead of him, even though Bill Walsh once said famously, who coached Joe Montana, that you know Joe Joe Montana was a product of the system, and Dan Marino was a system. So I, I think Dan gets gets dinged for it, but but we don't do it completely because there are some quarterbacks who've won championships that we don't elevate that way, right? Like nobody's elevating Joe Flacco as one of the greats of our time, mm-hmm. uh, even though he won a championship. I mean, nobody's going to elevate Nick Foles in that way. So, but I think we do it. Look, we do it in the NBA because one guy can make such a huge difference, and it is a personality-driven, individually-driven sport, as opposed to the NFL. Even when you're talking about quarterbacks, who are obviously given the most attention and have the most importance. So, I do think it's silly. I do think it's going to come up again because I think he's going to lose again. I don't think it's going to be his fault. Okay, but I just I can't see that Cavs team beating either of these other two teams that are going to come out of the West. But we'll have we'll have the argument again. All right. So, uh, thank you for joining us today here on the podcast. Can you follow us on iTunes? 
iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on CastBox. Follow our other podcasts, Three Yards Per Carry, Miami Heat Beat, Ballscast, and then the debut of the Pitch Invasion podcast on May 23rd. Have a great day. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.